You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Well, as we reach this uh, climactic moment in Jacob's life, we find that it is a uh, moment of wrestling. But the reality is, is it's important to remember that Jacob's entire story has been a story of wrestling. Back when we first meet him in Genesis 25, he wrestles with his brother in the womb, and he emerges grasping at his brother's heel, and therefore is named Jacob, the grasper. And even though he's the younger brother, God set him apart as the heir of the promise. The older will serve the younger. And this promise from God caused more wrestling for these brothers. He wrestles with his brother for the birthright. He prevails by driving a hard bargain, by capitalizing on Esau's godlessness in despising the birthright. And later, he wrestles with his father. He struggles with Isaac, who prefers his older brother because of his appetites and despite the promises of God. And with the help of his righteous mother, Rebekah, Jacob secures the blessing that was his by divine promise prevailing over his father and his increasingly embittered brother. And so after wrestling the blessing from his father, Isaac then freely reaffirms it, sending Jacob away from Canaan to Haran, partly to protect him from Esau's fury and rage and partly to secure a wife. And on the way, uh, Jacob receives more than his father's blessing. He receives the blessing of Abraham directly from God himself, standing above a giant stairway to heaven. Yahweh promises Jacob that even though he is leaving Canaan, his descendants will still inherit this land. He will have numerous offspring, and his offspring will bless all the families of the earth. And most importantly, for Jacob's immediate journey, God tells him, I will be with you wherever you go. Yahweh is no tribal deity, no local God. He is not limited to the land of Canaan, but journeys with Jacob into Haran. And over the last two weeks, we've seen Jacob wrestling again, this time with his uncle Laban. Twenty years of struggle, of wrestling with this worldly and deceitful and manipulative man. If you remember, Laban initially receives Jacob with joy, much as he'd done to Abraham's servant years before. So when when, uh, Abraham had sent his servant to find a wife for Isaac, the servant came to Laban, and Laban and the whole family welcomed him and, and received him and got many gifts from him. The servant gave Laban gifts of costly ornaments, and so when Laban's nephew shows up again looking for a wife but bringing no gifts, He comes only with the clothes on his back, and so Laban, instead of loving and welcoming his nephew, uses him. He forces him to labor. Jacob has to struggle for seven years to win the hand of Rachel, and then is tricked on his wedding night. This righteous trickster is knocked down, but he gets up again, and he labors and struggles for seven more years in order to marry Rachel. And then when he attempts to leave, Laban again attempts to use him to get rich. But God prospers Jacob and his 
wrestling with Laban over the flocks. And after 20 years, Jacob leaves Haran laden with his uncle's wealth, more prosperous than he could have imagined, and he journeys back to the promised land. And even here, even here, after wrestling in the womb, and after wrestling with his father and brother, and after wrestling for 20 years with his brother, and after he finally is coming back and he thinks, this is finally it, he enters the promised land, he receives messengers from God, angels of God there in chapter 32, verse 1. The angels come to meet him, and he thinks, finally, this is a new story, a new direction. And he sends ahead to Esau, and he finds out Esau is coming with an army to meet you. Jacob's wrestling isn't over. So he divides his family into two camps in hopes that at least some of them will survive when Esau attacks, and he pleads with God to deliver him from his brother, and then he sends his brother lavish gifts of goats and rams and camels and cattle and donkeys in hopes of appeasing him and finding favor in his sight. This is Jacob's story. Esau in the womb, Isaac over the blessing, Laban for his wives and his livelihood, and now back full circle with his brother again throughout his life, Jacob has been wrestling and striving with men. And if you, if you step back for a second, you think Genesis overall, all of this struggle and all of this labor and all of this striving and toil and hardship reminds us of Genesis chapter 3. And God's curse because of the sin of Adam and Eve. If you remember, part of that curse in Genesis 3 is a war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And so in struggling with his ungodly brother and his manipulative uncle, Jacob has been struggling with a brood of vipers. Even his father, the godly Isaac, has a season where he behaves like Adam in his sin, defying God's law for the sake of his appetites. So Jacob has been in the midst of this war, this enmity between the woman's seed and the serpent's seed. But not only that, he's experienced the curse upon the ground. You remember what God said to Adam. Jacob was supposed to receive the blessing according to God's promise. It, it was supposed to be older will serve the younger. It simply should have come to him as a gift. But instead of receiving it, Freely, he has to wrestle and struggle and even use deceit in order to get it. In the same way that the ground, which in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 was originally supposed to just give up the fruit. It was going to be work, but it was going to be fun. The ground was supposed to yield its fruit, and then after the curse, God comes and says, now you are going to have to sweat. You are going to have to bleed. You are going to have to labor and toil, and it's going to give you thorns and thistles instead. Jacob doesn't receive the promise on a silver platter. He gains it by the sweat of his brow and the grace of God. His birthright and the status and position and dignity that comes with it doesn't come easy. The blessing of his father doesn't come easy. His bride doesn't come easy. His wealth, his prosperity, his vocational fruitfulness does not come easy. It's labor, it's toil, it's struggle. The story of Jacob shows us from beginning to end the, the wrestling of a man in a broken and cursed world. And then, if you 
think again and review the last two weeks as Pastor David preached two weeks ago. It's not just Jacob who is wrestling. The wives of Jacob live in that same cursed world and have to wrestle themselves. First, they wrestle with their father. You remember when Jacob tells Rachel and Leah that they should leave Laban and Haran in chapter 31? They say to him, is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. In other words, when Laban stopped treating Jacob like family, but instead treated him like a common laborer, just working for his wages, in that moment he begins to treat his daughters like servants and slaves. In fact, like currency, like something to be used in a negotiation. He didn't just wrong his nephew. He despises his daughters. And then not only that, but he squanders their inheritance. In a cursed world, your own father can become an enemy. But it's not only that they have to struggle and wrestle with their father. These sisters, because of their father, wrestle with each other. His decision to use them for his own gain, to promise Rachel and then deliver Leah, results in the daughters struggling with each other. And 11 of the patriarchs come into the world in the midst of that family strife. Laban's wickedness means his daughters must compete for the affection of Jacob. And given that Jacob loved Rachel originally, Leah is at an immediate disadvantage. You remember this, right? Yahweh saw her. Yahweh gives her children. But the names of her first three children all show that the childbearing isn't just childbearing. This isn't just about kids. It's competition. She says, I am hated. Maybe now my husband will love me. That's what her children's names are. Can you imagine naming your children? I am hated. That's what their name means. The name of my child is to remind me, maybe now my husband will love me. Or now, this time, my husband will be attached to me. And then the fourth son, perhaps we see a shift. This time, I'm just going to praise the Lord. But you don't just see Leah's struggle as the unwanted sister. We see the struggle of a barren Rachel. Give me children or I die, she screams at her husband. Laban's wickedness leads to daughter competition and then Rachel's envy and then marital strife as Jacob grows angry at his beloved wife. And this is quintessential marital conflict right here. Men and women are different. And they tend to wrestle with different things, and they tend to wrestle in different ways. So in her grief, Rachel looks at her husband and says, give me children or I die. And Jacob responds in anger because he thinks, I can do nothing about this. How many husbands in here have ever felt in the midst of your wife's grief, I can do nothing, and you get angry, and you fight. You struggle with them because you've got nothing else that you can do. A husband struggles and wrestles with something that his wife just doesn't understand. Why is that a big deal to you? Because it's not a struggle for her. And then a wife struggles with something that the husband just doesn't get because it isn't a struggle for him. Why is that such a big deal to you? 
And as a result, they miss each other and begin to struggle with each other because his struggle isn't exactly the same as hers and hers isn't exactly the same as his. And even when it is the same, they don't struggle in the same way. We are Rachel and we are Jacob. Now, given her barrenness, Jacob and Rachel turn to desperate measures, just as Sarah and Abraham did, right? Jacob bears children for Rachel with Rachel's servant, Bilhah. And Rachel takes this as vindication from God when, when uh, she says, I have been vindicated when her first, first child is born to her servant. And then when Bilhah bears a second son, listen to the, what Rachel says. We explicitly hear this theme. With mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and prevailed. I have wrestled with her and I won. Now not only does Jacob love me more, but I have children of my own. I'm the winner. Rachel has children on her knee and she has Jacob's affection. And what does this do? It reawakens the competition in Leah, who now gives her servant Zilpah to Jacob and receives two more children by her. And when Asher is born, she says, happy am I, for women have called me happy. And it's not hard to hear the desperation in that. No, I'm happy. I'm really, really happy. It's hard not to hear the self-deceit in those words, the craving, the desperation, the attempt to convince herself that I'm really happy now. I'm really happy now because I've now beaten my sister again. And the competition becomes so intense that it spills over into everything. Rachel, remember that story where Rachel requests some mandrakes from Reuben, Leah's son? And mandrakes are likely a fertility treatment in the ancient world. And what does it happen? It results in a bargain. Like Jacob with his brother over the birthright, like Laban with Jacob over his wives and sheep, Leah is now driving a hard bargain. She hires her husband for drugs. You got that? She hires her husband for drugs. And she has a fifth son and a sixth son. And every time she says, now my husband will honor me. And then finally, God remembers Rachel, barren all of this time, and gives her a son, Joseph, and she cries out, God has taken away my reproach. In that sad, sad chapter, we see the wrestlings of two sisters because of their father's sin. And just as Jacob's wrestlings echo the curse of Genesis 3, the war between the serpent and the curse on man's labor, so also the wrestlings and strivings and struggles of Rachel and Leah echo the curse of Genesis 3. The offspring of the woman will crush the serpent's head, and these women struggle to produce offspring. Not only that, God told Eve, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And we normally think of the pain of childbearing there as the physical challenge at birth. But this passage shows us that it's the whole issue of childbearing that is painful and child raising and marriage. All of it is cursed because of the fall. In a cursed world, these women wrestle and strive for the affection of their husband. They wrestle 
over the bearing of children. They wrestle with their husband, one sister screaming at him for children and her husband angrily ruling over her, and the other desiring him so much she has to hire him. Even their servants are dragged into this rivalry. Collateral damage. And now these sisters find themselves divided into two camps. I wonder, when, when Jacob divided, was it like the children of Rachel and Bilhah and the children of Leah and Zilpah? Is that how they did it, or did they mix and mingle? Who knows? But they're fearing for their lives because Esau is coming with an army. So, wrestling with Esau in the womb. Striving with Isaac over a blessing. Struggling with Laban over wives and flocks. Struggling with a father who disinherits and despises. Wrestling with a sister over a husband's affection and children. This story has been filled with Jacob and Rachel and Leah wrestling and wrestling and striving and striving and struggling and struggling. And I recount all of that to you. Spend half of my time in this sermon reminding you of what we've seen in order to make one simple point from today's passage. When Jacob finds himself alone near the Jabbok River, preparing to face his angry brother, he wrestles with a man in the night. And the man does not prevail over Jacob, but wounds him in the hip. And in the morning, Jacob discovers he has not been wrestling with a man. He has been wrestling with God. I think that what we are meant to see here is that all of Jacob's wrestlings to this point and all of Rachel and Leah's wrestling and struggling in a cursed world has been fundamentally a wrestling with God. When he wrestled with Esau, he was wrestling with God. When he struggled with Isaac, he was struggling with God. When he was striving with Laban, he was striving with God. And when the, Rachel and Leah were wrestling with their father and with each other and with their husband, they were wrestling with God. And so here's the lesson for us today. This is, I have one exhortation to you from this sermon. One thing, and I'm going to unpack what I think it means. Every one of you, every one of you is wrestling with something. Something. Make all of your wrestling a wrestling with God. It's very simple. Make all of your wrestling, whatever it is, a wrestling with God. If you're a man living in a cursed world and you're wrestling with your boss or a coworker or your job in general, or if you're wrestling with one of your friends or with a rival, if you're wrestling with your brother or you're wrestling with your father, if you're wrestling for position or for status, if you're wrestling with your wife or with your children, make all of your wrestlings a wrestling with God. And if you're a woman in a cursed world and you're wrestling with unwanted singleness or infertility or miscarriage, or the struggles of raising children, 
or if you're struggling in your marriage, or if you're wrestling with other members of your family, a father, a mother, the in-laws, the siblings, if you're wrestling and striving with your friends or your coworkers or your job, make all of your wrestlings a wrestling with God. Now, what does that mean? What do I mean by that? What does it mean to make all of your wrestlings with life in a cursed world a wrestling with God? I've got six quick things. Number one. Wrestling, making your wrestlings a wrestling with God means you humble yourself before God. When Jacob hears that Esau is coming with the army, he prays and he says to God, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness you have shown to your servant. I'm not worthy of all of your goodness to me. Jacob humbles himself before God in his wrestlings. He says he remembers and embraces the goodness and kindness and faithfulness and steadfast love of God to you in your unworthiness. That's what it means to wrestle with God. Number two, not only do you humble yourself, but you cling to God's promises. Wrestling with God means you cling to his promises for dear life. Again, as Jacob prays with Esau's return imminent, he says to God, You told me to return here so that you could do me good. That's what you said. That's what you said. He says, verse 12, God, you said to me, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. That's what you said. And wrestling with God means you cling to that for dear life calling upon his promises, and staking everything on those promises. That's what it means to wrestle with God. Wrestling with God, third, means you ask him to help you in your wrestlings. Jacob humbles himself. He reminds God of the promises, and then he says, Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me and wipe out my family. Doesn't, you, don't, you cling to the promises and you say, Help me. Help me. Deliver me. I need deliverance. That's what it means to wrestle with God. Number four. This is so big. You humble yourself, you cling to the promise, you ask for deliverance, and wrestling with God means you don't let him go until he blesses you. I hope you feel the paradox of that. Like you're wrestling, right? God is like your adversary here in this situation. Like you're striving with him. You're wrestling with him. You're struggling with him. And yet you're doing it in the confidence that he wants to bless you. He wants to do you good. And you've just got to hang on for dear life until he does. And you won't let him go. Psalm 63 says... I think it's verse 8. The psalmist says to God, My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. It's, it's a clinging. It's like when your kids are, something happens, big noise, boom, and they're here. And they're just clinging. 
I'm not letting go. And his right hand upholds you. Number five. Wrestling with God means that you embrace the limp that God gives you. Jacob wrestles with God. God touches his hip. And he gives him a limp that he carries for the rest of his life. For the rest of his life. Limp. Limp. Some of you have wounds like that. Limps. And this passage connects Jacob's wound to Israelite dietary restrictions, why they don't eat certain parts of the animal. And this probably has to do with the sacrificial system and when, how they would carve the animal and what they would prepare. And so this is, this is connecting Jacob's wrestling and wounding by God to the sacrificial system, which I think suggests to us God is saying, Jacob is a living sacrifice, and so are you. Every time the Israelites would carve up an animal to sacrifice it and eat it, they would leave aside a portion to, that, that reminded them, our forefather wrestled with God and God wounded him for life. And we don't ever want to forget it. When we wrestle with God, we may cling to him, we may prevail, but you may also walk with a limp. Number six, wrestling with God means that you act in the confidence that comes from meeting him face to face. After Jacob, this is really important in the passage, after Jacob wrestles with God, he names the place of his wrestling Peniel. Probably have a little footnote in your Bible. It says face of God. So he wrestles with God and he says this place is face of God. That's the name of this place right here. And that's important, okay? It marks it. He, he puts a stake in the ground and says, I met God face to face here. And then, even more significantly, when he comes, the next day when he comes and he meets Esau and he discovers that, in fact, Esau is not planning to kill him and his family, he says to Esau this, verse 10 of chapter 33. He says to Esau, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, accept my present from my hand. Accept these gifts that I'm giving to you, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. In other words, having wrestled with God face to face, Jacob sees God's face everywhere, including in the face of the brother that he's wrestled with his whole life. Even his face is now the face of God, and Jacob can act in confidence that God will deliver him. I think that's what's happening in the next chapter in 33. Esau's like, hey, come with me, come with me, come with me. And Jacob's like, no, you go on ahead. Okay, well, follow me to my house. No, I think I'm gonna, maybe, and then goes off and settles in Sukkoth instead of going to Seir. And he settles in Sukkoth and then goes and buys some land over near Shechem. And he, he's kind of getting away from his brother. He's like, what is he doing? Why, his brother's being nice now. I think this is what's happening. Jacob is, is saying, he's establishing his own independence from Esau in light of his dependence on God. I don't need my brother, and living in his shadow is dangerous, just like living with Laban was dangerous. Esau may be happy right now, 
How long will it last? I don't know. So I'm going to establish my household over here and build my wealth and my, my people and my family. We will be here. And Esau will be there and we will wave, but we are here, not there. Jacob acts in a, the confidence that comes. He doesn't fear Esau anymore. He doesn't fear him anymore. He can settle away from him without fear of anger. Finally, number seven. Here's the summary. So re- recap. What does it mean to wrestle with God? It means you humble yourself, you cling to his promises, you ask him for deliverance, you don't let him go until he blesses you, you embrace the limp that he gives you, you act in the confidence that comes from meeting him face to face. In some, wrestling with God means you must develop a kind of triple vision in a cursed world. Triple vision. Here's what triple vision means. There are layers to your strugglings, to our struggle and our strivings. First level, there's the actual people or situations or pains with whom we are wrestling. Uncle Laban, Father Isaac, Brother Esau, Sister Rachel or Sister Leah, barrenness, singleness, job, position, whatever the struggle is, that's level one. But then behind the struggle, we have a double vision. We recognize what Paul tells us In Ephesians chapter 6, listen to the echo, I think, of what's happening in Genesis. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers of the present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In other words, when we're wrestling against flesh and blood, we're not just wrestling against flesh and blood. Behind the conflict with Esau is the enmity of the serpent. Behind the plots of Laban are the schemes of the devil. And behind them all, this is the third level, are the plans of God. The plans of God. The plots of men, the schemes of the devil, the plan of God. That's triple vision. Our wrestling with flesh and blood, our wrestling with principalities and powers, are most deeply a wrestling with God. Behind the plots of man, behind the schemes of the devil, is the plan of God, and his plan is to do you good. And so we can see the plans of God in the plots of men and the schemes of the devil, just as Jacob sees the face of God in the face of his brother. And this is the chief challenge for us. The chief challenge for you right now, wherever you are, is that your struggle feels more real to you than God does. Laban's tricks are more real to you than God is. Esau's fury is more real to us than God is. Barrenness, infertility is more real to us than God is. When Rachel cries out to Jacob, give me children or I die, she is saying, Jacob, you're more real to me than God is. Give me children. And when Jacob responds back in anger and says, am I in the place of God? She's more real to him than God is. Wrestling with God fundamentally means he, in the midst of everything else, it's all real. He is most real to us. He is the one by ourselves 
when we're alone by the river and we're face to face, man to man, woman to God, it's him. It's him. And that brings us to the table. At this table, God makes himself real to us. Jesus, the one who wrestled with the plots of the Jews and the Romans and who struggled with the schemes of the devil and Judas and who obeyed the plan of God for his good and ours, Jesus says to you here, I'm real. As real as this bread and this wine is to your tongue, that's how real I am to your soul. He's real. And so come, whether you're wrestling or resting, come to the table and meet the God who wants to do you good. Let's pray. Father, I can't fathom some of the pain in this room right now. Some of the fears of what's going to happen tomorrow, what's going to happen later this week, what happened last week, what's been going on for years and years and years. Lord, that pain and that struggle is so real. I pray, oh God, be more real now. Help us, I pray, to make all of our wrestlings a wrestling with you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he prevailed. Prevail over us. In Jesus' name, amen. Have the pastors come for the bread. And as they do, just a reminder to you, his body His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.